Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, You've Got Mail, where we discuss the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Welcome. You've got mail. The reading this week is from Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here ends the reading. I often lament that I don't have a a great preaching voice, but this guy did and does have a a unique and great preaching voice, and his name is Greg Laurie. Some of you have maybe heard of him before, and he preached uh, sermons pretty different than the way I do. Uh, He was more of an evangelist. He would do big crusades in stadiums like Billy Graham, and I tread lightly when I mention Billy Graham anymore. He would preach sermons kind of like Billy Graham did, and he would fill these stadiums, and he would share the gospel, and and people would just come in droves down to the front to to give their lives to Jesus, essentially. And and his messages on the radio were similar to that. In fact, it was that kind of message that I would ultimately respond to, inviting Jesus into my heart to use his verbiage, and it's the reason— I'm standing here today, and that event took place in my grandmother's blue bathtub in 2001. And it introduced me, I know, it's a, that's a visual, I'm so sorry. And, and it introduced me to, I wonder how many people came to Christ in the bathtub in the history of the world. I would like a, I would like a, a meeting of those people in heaven one day. Yeah, I might be by myself. I might be the president of that, of that club. But it introduced me to my second memorized Bible verse, I'm going to assume it was my second. I'm sure before that I probably had John 3.16 memorized. After all, I did go to church. I wasn't a pagan, you know. But secondly, it was Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would hear my voice and open the door, I would come in and eat with him and he with me. 
That's a nice verse, isn't it? It's a great one for the table even, right? Eating themed, like that. And he would say, Greg Laurie would say, listen, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart right now, knocking. Would you let him in? This morning, we're going to hear that same reminder. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. But for me, at that time, it was, it was a reminder to a single person to really trust Jesus and his finished work on the cross. But for the original context, it was for people who had already previously trusted Jesus, it seems. It was a letter written to Christians. It was for a church. It was for the church in Laodicea. Now, this letter is a serious one. It contains no 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 positive like affirmations of these people right not only is it not the compliment sandwich where you squeeze in some constructive criticism between two compliments like we've talked about there are really just no compliments at all it's just hard hitting criticism from Jesus this morning but i think this letter is also the most fun and interesting ones because of all the local connotations with their culture and the way that Jesus communicates with them it's really it's really fascinating and so we'll see some of that this morning Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, it starts out. He's saying, hear this from the one who is the first and who is the last word. The first and the last word. The one who doesn't ever get his judgments wrong. What I'm about to say is true. I know your works. This Jesus, we've said it every week and we'll say it again because he's repeated it a lot. This Jesus, he sees you. He knows. He knows what you do. He knows what you think, what you say. He knows your heart. And he knows all about Laodicea too. He knows that they are a well-resourced area. He knows about the pagan worship that thrives in their region. He knows about the Jews who have blended in with their Greek neighbors. In fact, scholars point out that by the third century, there are coins They have illustrations that combine pagan flood stories with the one that we find in our Bible in Genesis. These Jews, they weren't separate anymore. They were blending into the culture, a problem Christians surely don't have today, right? He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. These Christians in Laodicea, they, they seemingly make Jesus want to puke. You ever taste something and instantly start to gag? Hopefully not something after church today. Yeah, I have this memory as a kid. I was indoors, mind you, and a bug flew into my mouth. Now, my, my propensity for throwing up as a child has been well documented here. And this wasn't just any bug. This was a big crane fly. Do you know what a crane fly is? We have a lot of them outside of the church. They live in this yard. When we first looked at this building, I was kind of walking through the grass and they were coming up everywhere. They're those things that look like huge mosquitoes. You might say that was a really big mosquito, but it's not. It's a crane fly. And so something flies into my mouth and there's this taste and I can taste it as I'm telling this story. It's horrible taste. And I reached into my mouth and I just pulled out a tangle of legs. I can still taste that awful taste as I tell the story. And now I'm going to tell you another story that's completely off script. But one time I was on my way to college and I had stopped at a, a drive-thru, like a, like a beer wine sort of drive-thru, to get a cappuccino. 
You know, just like the, like the sugary cappuccino where you just press the button and get the cappuccino. So I, I got one of those on my way to college. I had a little commute. And it was in like a cup like you're holding today. Sorry to ruin it for you. But like with a little what we call a sip hole when I worked at Starbucks. And so I'm driving and I go to take a drink. And I go to take, nothing comes out. And yeah, it's, I wish I would have. And I tip it and nothing comes out. And I'm like, that's weird. I do it again. Nothing comes out. And if you work at a place that has these cappuccino machines, you're supposed to put like a bag over it at the end of the night because sweet stuff dries on it. And I don't know if you know what likes sweet things. Flies do. And so after I couldn't get a sip of it, the third time I went, and I've not drank one of those cappuccinos since for, for many reasons. So, so that made me want to puke, right? It made me want to vomit it out of my mouth. Or my son, he'll be playing, and you know, he's a kid, so he rolls on the ground, and his mouth is open half the time, and he'll stand up, and he'll look at my wife, and he'll go, hell. And what he's saying is, he has a hair in his mouth, and he does not know what to do about that. And when he says, hell, you have to burst into action, because there is an invisible countdown clock above his head, and when it gets to zero, he's just going to take matters into his own hand by puking it up. This is sort of the taste of the Laodicean church to Jesus. They're like a drink of warm water on a hot summer day. Worse than that. And they knew what Jesus was talking about when he gives this illustration, and here's why. While this church in Laodicea is well-resourced, and we'll talk more about that in a bit, they have one flaw, one sort of bugaboo, one thing that they can't take civic pride in, and that would be their drinking water. See, here's the thing. You've probably heard this passage taught before, and maybe you, maybe you are, hopefully you are a Christian yourself, and you've been maybe talking about somebody else, and they're like, hey, what's up with Randy? And you're like, I don't know, man. I think he's kind of lukewarm. And when you, when you think about that, when you say that phrase, you're relating it to spiritual fervor. You're like, I mean, he doesn't hate Jesus, but he doesn't seem very excited about him either, right? And, and so you've heard this passage being taught, Jesus would rather you be hot or cold, meaning he'd rather you have burning, hot passion for him, or he'd rather you be completely against him. But to be nominal, to be dispassionate, Christian but barely, Christian but disinterested, that makes him want to puke. And there is something to that, in my opinion. From a, from a missionary perspective, if, if you're not a Christian, not a saved one, I'd rather you be completely against him, an atheist, an anti-theist, whatever, something where you actually know yourself that you are not a Christian. Then we, can, then we can get somewhere if you already know you're not a Christian. We'll talk about this in a few weeks in our evangelism series. But I can't say that I think this is totally what's on John in Jesus' mind here in this moment when they're writing to Laodicea. Because here's the thing we know about the water in Laodicea. To the north, there were hot springs. Hot springs were the kind of place you would, you'd visit to relieve your sore muscles. They served a medicinal purpose. And to the east, they had Colossae that had pure, cold water. Excellent for drinking if you're into drinking water. They didn't have pop or, to my knowledge, coffee yet. So that was the best they could do, pretty much. But on a long, hot, sandy, lots of sand day, what could be more refreshing than a cold cup of water? But Laodicea, 
Despite their best efforts to pipe it in, they could not get cold water. They just couldn't get cold water. They had terrible drinking water. By the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. The, the hot water would travel over limestone cliffs. It would never cool off all the way. It would cool just to lukewarm. It would be kind of salty. Doesn't that sound refreshing, right? The water was full of sediment. In fact, Craig Keener points out that when they excavated this city, the dr- they found the drinking pipes, terracotta drinking pipes, um, water pipes that had the drinking water in them. And they had these thick lime deposits lining the inside of them. And there was a, a waterfall cliff visible from their city, and they could see a reminder looking at it of the one black mark on their reputation of being self-sufficient. It'd be that, that lime deposit. And they just couldn't figure out this water issue. The point is, these Laodiceans, they know bad water. They know how gross it is. They understand wanting to projectile vomit it out of their mouth. It's salty. It's full of sediment. It's disgusting. It's not refreshing. And so Jesus compares this church to the worst thing about their city. And why? He doesn't say because you're nominal in your belief. He doesn't say because you lack fervor. He says this in the text. He says, because you say I'm rich, I become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, Laodicea's main problem is they are self-sufficient or they believe they're self-sufficient. Now, the idea that they're poor, wretched, that would be surprising to them. They'd say we're Christians, right? And pitiful and poor, we're in Laodicea. We're doing okay. Our city is prosperous. It's well-resourced. We're doing good here. They were so self-sufficient. They were so convinced that they were good that when an earthquake hit their city, they refused what is essentially the first century equivalent to disaster relief funds. Because they're Laodiceans. They're self-sufficient. They have pride. They can't take a government handout to fix their city. They'll fix it themselves. But the descriptors of blind and naked are especially hard-hitting, confusing for, for the Laodiceans and us non-Laodiceans alike. And, and for us, it's the kind of fun descriptors because they're not talking about us. I mean, they might be talking about you, but originally they are talking about them. And here's why. Here's why they're so interesting. Much like the lukewarm idea, these are not random descriptors. They would be shocked to hear that they're considered to be blind by Jesus. Now, why Why is that? It just so happens that Laodicea is the location of a first-century medical school. Now, this particular medical school was famous for an ear ointment that was produced there, but more relevant to our text this morning, a famous eye doctor who practiced there made it famous. And then maybe most ironically, they were famous for an eye salve, which was produced right there in Laodicea. It was called Phrygian eye salve, made with Phrygian powder, and it would be mixed with water, made into sort of like, be kind of rolled into a dough consistency, and then you'd put it over your eyes. And it apparently worked wonders on eye ailments. I haven't looked on Amazon to see if I can get any yet, but I, I maybe should. See, they were not just prosperous, but they were known as a wealthy banking center. But Jesus says, buy gold from me, refined, from, refined by fire so you can be rich. He's saying, forget your, your pride in your banking. You are poor and you need something from me. They're actually spiritually destitute. And only by receiving what Christ can offer can they become rich in, in the only ways that really matter. 
And they think they can see. In fact, they might brag that they are the experts in vision, right? The same way that Akron might be the expert in rubber because of their tire manufacturing. But Jesus says, come by ISAF for me, way better than yours, so you can cure your spiritual blindness. And remember, he says they're naked, right? In Laodicea, there's actually a booming textile industry. Both clothing and carpets were manufactured there, and they were specifically famous for their black wool. That was their thing. How can you say we're naked, Jesus? First of all, we clearly have clothes on, all right? But secondly, we're Laodicea. We're the black fabric capital of the world. We don't just have clothes. We basically invented clothes. How dare you, Jesus? And Jesus says, buy from me white clothing. See what he did there? So you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. You think you have money, but you're poor without me. You think you have clothes, but you are completely exposed without me. You think you can see, but you're actually blind without me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you think you are self-sufficient, but unless you find your sufficiency in me, you are utterly destitute and you are completely lost. Stop relying on the things you have and start relying on me. Stop looking inward and start looking to me. Stop boasting about what your city has done and start boasting about what Christ has done for you. Don't you see, it is self-sufficiency in Laodicea that's making Jesus sick to his stomach. And as we sit here this morning, how many of us are guilty of the same sin of self-sufficiency? How is it that we can find ourselves self-sufficient instead of relying on the all-sufficient Jesus? Maybe for happiness. I don't need to keep going to Jesus as a source of joy. After all, I've got my significant other. I've got my kids. I've got my career. I am good, Jesus. I don't need the joy you have on offer if I would just abide in your love. I don't need it. And maybe Jesus is saying to you this morning, you're actually miserable. Come to me for a true joy that lasts. Or maybe it's safety. Maybe you think, I live in a safe suburban community. There's no real crime here. And if there is, I have a secure home where the doors are locked. And if someone decides to harm me and get past those locks, I've got some other means to protect myself. But Jesus is saying perhaps to you, you are in absolute danger until you find your safety depending on me. Maybe it's your health. Perhaps you find self-sufficiency in your health. You eat right, exercise regularly, take all the supplements. You see your doctor regularly. You've put your trust in your own ability to care for yourself. And Jesus might be saying, you are perilously sick until you come find health in me. Until you rely on me. Purpose. You may have purpose in life that doesn't really involve God. You might have meaningful work. Maybe you have a nonprofit. You volunteer at soup kitchens. You give to the poor. You might think, well, I have purpose. And Jesus says, until you find your purpose in me, you are utterly purposeless. You are lost. Love, you might think, you have all the love in your life you could ever need because you have kids and a spouse and a family and a significant other or whatever. And Christ might be here saying, because you think you can find this apart from me, you are utterly loveless until you have the ultimate love in your life, and that is my love. There are so many ways we can seek to or think we are self-sufficient, seek to be or think we are self-sufficient, no ma- and no matter how full we may appear, it's just not true. 
How about as a church? How, how, how do we do this as a church? I keep pointing us back to how these letters are written to churches. They're not written to individuals in their bathtub, right? And so how as a church can we see self-sufficiency instead of relying on Christ and his power to be sufficient? Where can we see that? Here's the biggest one for me, prayerlessness. I think for bigger churches, it can look like this. The building is paid for. The budget is exceeded. Attendance is great. Online looks incredible. Our groups are full. What more can we need? We don't need to get on our face before God because we are already killing it. But you can have all those things and be void of God's spirit. You can have a church like that and it can crumble. You can lead a church without being led by the spirit. But do you want to? You can grow a church without growing in dependence on Jesus. But why would you want to? Then I think for a church like us, a church in our position, the same thing can happen. Prayerlessness. We talked in our congregational meeting, we, we need more money, we want more people to attend, we want to grow as a church. But instead of getting on our face before God and asking he would, that he would do it, we think we have a great building. We have decent teaching. We have a killer worship leader. We have great meals together. We put together really good events. We've got this, right? But we have to hit our knees and ask God to do it, to bring people to this place, to let the, the word of God read and taught penetrate hearts, to lead people to genuine encounters with him in worship. We have to pray, you guys. Prayer has got to be the lifeblood of the church. And so I'm gonna share this from my heart and I hope it doesn't make you mad at me, but I have to say it. We have these prayer meetings once a month that Nathan announced. They last one hour. We come together and we ask God to be at work in this church, in this community. And I think at this point, the count is we've had eight different people who have attended. Eight people. Eight different individuals. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. This isn't to shame you. I know people are busy. I know people have things going on. Maybe you are sitting here and you have a standing commitment every Monday night at 630. And I do understand that. Maybe you, don't, maybe you don't come to these prayer meetings, but you are daily pleading with the Father to grow this church, to bring new people to faith. And I totally appreciate that if that's you. That might be many of you even this morning. But I'm just begging you to rely on Christ and not the gifts we have here for growth and for the longevity of the church. And so if this convicts your heart and you feel the Spirit nudging, I would love for you to join us at 6.30 on the second Monday of every month. And if, you, if you're like, man, that does convict me, you're right, but I can't be there for that. If you can't make that time, but you think we could start a second prayer meeting at a different time that you'd like to lead, I'd be thrilled to have a conversation about that too. But certainly my speaking, Michelle's singing, even your home cooking, none of it is enough. It's far from enough if we're, if we're depending on those things instead of the risen Jesus. And how does being self-sufficient rather than leaning on the all-sufficient Jesus, how does that affect us? What's, what's so wrong with that? How do, we see, how do we see the effects of that in our lives? It may, it may lead us to lash out when, we, when things don't go our way. It might lead us to panic. If it's, if it's on us, if we have to be sufficient, then when things don't go right, when things crumble, 
that was on us. That was in our hands and not God's hands, we must think. And, and we must have thought we were in control. We were enough, and we weren't, apparently. And when we find out we're not in control, if we don't trust on him to be in control, then we start to spiral. I think that's one symptom of being self-sufficient rather than leaning on the other sufficient Christ. But the other major symptom is what the other interpretation of this passage that you've probably heard before um, coincidentally points to, and that is a lack of zeal. A lack of zeal. If we're enough without Jesus, we think, if we're enough without Jesus, then it's hard to be excited about Jesus. It's hard to be excited about a Jesus who is your sidekick. It is hard to be excited about a Jesus who is just the Robin to your Batman. It's hard to be excited about a Jesus who is your co-pilot. You need a Jesus who you are utterly dependent upon. You need a relationship with this Jesus where, where you come to a place where you say, I honestly have no idea how anyone gets through a day without him. I need that sort of relationship. I need it. I'm never up here on some ivory tower shouting down at all of you to figure it out. I need to figure it out too much of the time. It's a high calling. It's so easy to do all the things of life and all the things in the church and leave Jesus in the dust because we're not doing them in dependence upon him. But this is the good news this morning. He says he only rebukes those he loves. So if you're feeling the words of Jesus pointed at your heart this morning, if the Holy Spirit is whispering to you this morning that this is you that he's talking about, that you are like this church, that you are kind of a little Laodicean in your spiritual life this morning, don't hang your head. Don't beat yourself up. Don't spiral into despair because he rebukes and disciplines those he loves. He loves it's a good sign of God's love when he corrects you. So he says, be zealous and repent. Change your mind. The word, the word for repent means change your mind. Metanoia, change your mind. Reverse course, turn around. Be zealous about Jesus. That's not a command where you can just say, oh, okay, and, and like flip a switch and be zealous, right? Zeal cannot be contrived. It takes effort. It takes heart work. It takes cultivating an inner life. So pray and read the scriptures and meditate on them and remember what Christ has done for you. Come to church on Sundays. Be engaged. Worship. Take communion. And if you do those things wholeheartedly, you'll become zealous. I believe that. And zealous people are close to Jesus. Zealous people know they're not sufficient, but that Jesus is. And zealous people lean on Jesus. So become that kind of person. Any other person is kind of useless. You hear that in the right way. Useless like warm water on a hot day. Hot springs provided healing. Cold water provided refreshment. Self-sufficient people without any zeal for the Lord provide neither. And it makes Jesus sick to his stomach. But Jesus, he stands at the door and knocks. Because he's always pursuing, always moving towards relationship. And if the church then, and if this church now, and if all of you now will open the door, he will come in. 
and you'll have fellowship with him. You can know the risen Jesus. To those who conquer, he gives the right to sit with him on his throne, which seems like it has to be a large throne for the church universal. Maybe he lets you take turns. I'm not really sure. Maybe it's just some imagery here. But, but he's saying the one who conquers will have kingdom life with Jesus. You'll reign with him. But you have to keep going. You have to keep going. You have to be one who conquers. So don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't assimilate with the culture. Don't leave Jesus behind. Don't doze off into nominalism. Don't lose your zeal to the one who conquers. Michelle, you can come up. To the one who conquers. We've highlighted this phrase over and over again because Jesus keeps repeating it to the one who keeps going. That's how we conquer. We don't quit. It's kind of almost feels like the, the main message of these seven letters to the one who conquers. Don't quit. As you're sitting here this morning, have you quit? Or do you feel like you're quitting? Are you here this morning because church is just routine and I mean you still like church and, and you still like Jesus and you've kept some of the moral beliefs of the Bible, but that's, that's really it. You and Jesus' relationship has grown cold a long time ago. If so, I hope this series has encouraged and reminded you, keep going. Keep going. You're not dead, so there's still time. Keep going. Maybe you're getting tired. You're busy. It's, it's hard following Jesus. That's just true. It's hard following Jesus. It's hard making time for Jesus. Keep going. Keep going. Be zealous and repent. Rely on Christ. Keep going. Keep going. And we keep going. The early church kept going. Not by sort of white-knuckling it, but by looking at Jesus' example. Jesus went first, and he didn't quit for a moment. This Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, gave thanks, and then he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup again, giving thanks, and he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the picture of not quitting. Because he didn't quit even when facing the cross. And if he didn't quit when facing the cross, because you have his spirit inside of you, you can keep going in the face of secularism, in the face of social pressures, in the face of your time management, in the face of opposition to your faith, your faith in the face of temptation, in the face of distraction. If Jesus could face the cross and you have a spirit, you can face whatever it is that would tempt you to quit. So this morning as we prepare to take communion, I just want you to think about your life. Have you quit? Are you quitting? What are the pressures that seek to make you quit? Maybe think about if you've been here with us for this series, what churches have you related to in this series and what's God's word for you what's the spirit saying to you and so I just want us to to take this opportunity this moment 
to pray and ask the Lord what he wants to emphasize in our hearts from these seven letters. And then when you're ready, you can stand and take communion. We take communion by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. You can find communion on my left, gluten-free communions available on my right in the back. My friend Randy is going to be available to pray for you. Maybe, maybe the Lord has just put something heavy on your heart in this series and you need somebody to come alongside of you and, and pray for you. Randy would love to do that. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're on the verge of quitting, that pressures have led you to start to, start to assimilate with the culture like some of these churches have. Randy would love to pray for you for that. I, I'd urge you to, to kind of step out in faith because I know it can be awkward, but to let your faith lead you to ask somebody to pray for you this morning if you need that. So I'm going to pray, and then you can take communion whenever you're ready. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the kind, gentle word that you rebuke, discipline, remind those that you love. And so if we ever feel, feel your gentle rebuke, we know it's not because you hate us. It's quite the opposite. It's because you love us. God, I need that reminder sometimes. And so I just pray this morning um, that, that the people sitting here would know that they're loved. God, would you restore us to a place of zealousness for you? For anybody here this morning that maybe is on the verge of quitting, to not be listed among those who conquer, that you would, that you would move in their heart, that you would change that, that you would stand with them in opposition to any force that would tempt them to quit pray that we would encounter you this morning at the communion table. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.